I think actually confidence can be a self-limiting belief. The number one bias in humans is overconfidence. Being self-critical and doubting yourself can be a wonderful foundational element of your potential for being great in any area of life. Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. I haven't had many conversations in my life where my viewpoint has changed as much as in this episode of Tiger Therapy. If you're someone who doubts yourself a lot, lacks confidence, you are definitely going to want to listen to this. Dr. Tomas Chamorro Pramuzic is a psychologist who has done a lot of research into confidence. And where he differs from a lot of things you may have heard before is that he's not trying to make us more confident. In fact, he argues that a lack of confidence is actually really powerful and ultimately makes us better. Dr. Tomas is author of several books. There are a couple of them sitting on my desk right now, and they are brilliant. One is called Confidence, How Much You Really Need and How to Get It. And the other is Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders, which I really recommend, which explores the gender differences in confidence. Thank you to Dr. Tomas. I now feel strangely proud of my (laughs) self-doubt. Dr. Tomas, you wrote, people want confidence more than they need it. Can you explain why? Yeah, so first we want it in other people. And when, for example, we make selections of our leaders, managers, presidents, heads of states, based on how assertive they look, we inevitably end up with a lot of people who are more confident than competent. And that includes a lot of deluded narcissists who will actually be quite detrimental for those who they lead or those they are responsible and accountable for. And equally, we want it too much in ourselves or for ourselves, which means that we focus so much on performing to others, seeming assertive and trusting our gut feel, our self-belief. When in fact, the right amount of confidence is one that aligns with our actual competence, with our actual capabilities. Whether you're learning Japanese to play the piano or, you know, to be a good manager, the right amount of confidence is not too much. It's one that actually makes you aware of your limitations and helps you close the gap between how good you are and how good you want to be. Mm. Okay, so you argue that women make better leaders than men. Can you tell us why this is? Yes. So, I mean, the evidence is just there. And uh, I'm not saying this is a definitive, nature-driven, universal, forever biological phenomenon. But if you think about the qualities that leaders ought to have today, things like emotional intelligence, empathy, self-awareness, humility, people skills, self-control, and integrity, in each of these traits or qualities, there are gender differences that favor women, not men. And these are average differences, right? So we're talking about significant average differences in the direction of women by maybe 10, 15% at most. But what it also means is that if we actually selected people into leadership roles on the basis of these qualities, actually ignoring their gender, and being gender blind, we would end up with about 60, maybe 65% of women in leadership roles. And if you look at what we have, especially in the C-suite, 
is usually about 15, maybe 20, at best 25% of women. So it's almost like, you know, if this was the NBA and the professional basketball league, and we had established that height is an important driver of good basketball performance, and then we measured height, we would be selecting shorter people, not taller people. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, leader selection is not meritocratic, is anti-meritocratic as it stands, which is really important because those who object gender diversity and inclusion interventions see it as an assault on meritocracy. They're like, oh my God, this is like positive discrimination or affirmative action go away, the best person should get the job, irrespective of the gender, to which I always say, wouldn't that be nice? But the evidence is that we're actually doing the reverse. Where does this gender element come from? So men are usually more confident, women usually have better emotional intelligence, but why? Oh, there's a lot of you know history and debate on this one, and it is complicated, but the simple answer is that it's always a combination of nature and nurture. You know, on the nature side, which is something that traditional feminists don't like, the rational explanation is that given that women have historically invested a lot more time in parenting or motherhood than men have, meaning, you know, if I as a man want to have a child, I may invest as little as a couple of minutes. Uh, you can ask Boris Becker, who has written about this and how much this costs him, right? And if you, as a woman, want to invest in motherhood, you know, you're looking at around nine months, sometimes plus, 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 even if you don't do much after that. So because of that, there are natural gender differences in empathy, caregiving, and connecting with others. Remember that empathy biologically speaking, makes us more kind and caring to those who are more similar to us, which is very interesting because it was, you know, we're pre-wired for empathy so that we can protect our gene pool and ensure that we pass on our gene pool. So that's just standard evolutionary psychology or evolutionary biology, and you can like it or not, but the evidence on this is very clear. On the other hand, you have culture or cultures which tend to reinforce predispositions that are there to begin with. So, you know, most cultures, I mean, whether you're looking at more sexist cultures like Japan or Argentina or more feminist or at least androgynous cultures, if you want, or more egalitarian cultures like Iceland or Canada, there are still these gender roles that get reinforced through parenting. So from an early age, if you have kids and you have a son who isn't very good at something, but might seem a little bit funny. You might interpret, wow, so charismatic, strong people, which makes him more confident in turn and more likely to develop a reputation for being smart. And if you have, you know, a girl or a daughter and she makes little mistakes, you will reinforce these gender stereotypes and say, okay, maybe she's not cut to be a leader or a manager, etc. So, Culture typically doesn't cancel out or mitigate the influence of biological factors on nature. It tends to exacerbate it. But at the same time, you know, humans have always been very adaptable and been very able to create systems and cultures that actually run against or run counter some of our outdated beliefs. So if today, for example, we pick leaders on their basis of their physical strengths, their aggression, their bravado, their violence, and maybe also their autocratic style, which worked pretty well during hunter-gatherer times or in, you know, in medieval times, if you do that today, you end up with Trump, Putin, and etc. right? (laughs) And you could argue, oh, I kind of like that. And actually Freud wrote about that and said, we are instinctively or unconsciously still pre-wired to select these kind of leaders. But most of the evidence suggests that in highly functioning systems and organizations, you actually need people who are more collaborative, who actually crowdsource the wisdom of the crowd, and who treat people like humans and that a humanist style of leadership is what we need today. But in order to do that, we have to distrust our instincts and we have to not pick the first person who entertains us in 30 seconds of a televised presidential debate, but actually look at data and seek these qualities, self-awareness, integrity, humility, and so on. So, I mean, just anecdotally, I must say that over the years, all the best bosses I've had have been women. I mean, I have a couple of male bosses I can think of who I think were 
very good leaders and they were very emotionally intelligent. But also all the worst bosses I've ever had have been men. Yeah. Well, you know, and so it's important sometimes in, in academia we say data tell but stories sell, right? Mm. You know this because you are somewhat in the business of storytelling. What your listeners and people connect to is sound bites, stories, personal anecdotes, bringing things to life. All that is very important. And I can bore people with slides and slides of charts and they won't remember that or they won't care about statistics. But we need to also acknowledge that the plural of anecdote is not data and that the only way that we can reconcile kind of your anecdotes with somebody else's and mine is to put it all together and see what happens on average. And when you do that today, you will find that on average, women end up outnumbering and outperforming men at universities, including in MBAs, which is by no means a definitive requirement for being a good leader, but it's the one that companies still care about. So more women at university, more women with MBAs, they do better than men. We also see that they tend to have fewer of the, of the dark side traits that actually make leaders ineffective, things like narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy. I mean, there might be documentaries about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, but for each and one of these predatorial, toxic female leaders, there's probably 10 male leaders and a lot of Wolf of Wall Streets for each of uh, Elizabeth Holmes. And then as said, you know, the soft skills, they're more frequently in women than men, which is why when you look at data, on average, women tend to get better ratings when they're leaders than men, which is extraordinary since society is mostly sexist. And, you know, if you work for a female boss, you're already kind of predisposed to think, oh my God, you know, how does she get the job? Is she good, etc. But still, if you ask teams to rate their bosses, they give higher ratings to women bosses than men bosses. And also, when we look at the data on how these women impact employee engagement, performance, and morale, on average, the ratings and the performance or the KPIs, key performance indicators, are higher than for male managers. So the data are there. And, you know, I'll be happy to compromise to the notion that there are not huge differences if we agree that there are marginal or there's no differences. But even if there were no gender differences, how do we explain that on top of organizational hierarchies, only 15 or 20 percent of leaders are female, or that in Fortune 500 companies, the number has hovered around between 5 and 10%. Wow. So if there's anyone listening who is thinking, gosh, my company has largely male leadership, some are great, but half of them are hopeless, some are megalomaniacs, <laughs> what can they do? Well, I mean, they can go and work for somebody else if they work for that <laughs> company. And that's usually the quick solution, except, you know, this is kind of the norm. Mm. Importantly, I'm not arguing that if you're a male manager or a male leader, you're by de facto or default bad. Actually, there's a lot of great male managers. All I'm saying is that there just isn't a big enough pipeline of competent male leaders to populate leadership roles because we're actually ignoring almost half of the population, especially when it comes to leadership roles. And I think, obviously, there's a lot of organizations that are trying to address this. My message and what I try to do with my books and my talks and my research is not to hope for a revolt or bottom-up change. I mean, grassroots movements happen, but they take a lot of time to change things. So I'm trying to preach to the executives, to the CEOs, to the boards, because fundamentally, it's not just the case that a lot of the leaders that are there aren't as good as they should be. So there is an invisible affirmative action or positive discrimination that puts people there because of their gender or confidence rather than because of their capabilities or potential or performance. They need to also understand that teams make better decisions, leadership teams, board of directors, executive teams, when there is a balance in cognitive diversity. And if everybody is in the same way, has the same gender, the same personality, the same background, I mean, there's probably five, six or seven people too many. If you have people who bring something different to the table and you have different perspectives represented, you're less likely to suffer from groupthink, from uh, having just one view on things and going with that. 
And you're more likely to actually think creatively and be innovative and see different perspectives. So it's not just that we have a lot of women that are unfairly excluded from leadership roles and a lot of men who are unfairly included in leadership roles. But we're also not leveraging the power of cognitive diversity, of bringing different beliefs, different values, different styles and different skills to leadership teams, which again, historically traditional feminist arguments have disliked because they always said women and men are the same which is not correct. There's a lot of data and, you know, Cindy Gallup and I have written about this. Actually, you know, there's a lot of data highlighting that there's differences, gender differences. But paradoxically, we're trying to make women more like men as opposed to men more like women. So if, if we're telling a woman, oh, be more confident, be more assertive, bullshit your way up. Actually, an example is we should be telling men, hey, be capable of self-doubt, be more humble, and actually develop skills rather than a reputation for being more talented than you actually are. Mm. Sally, I was going to ask you about that, actually, because a lot of the leadership advice given to women is kind of, you need to be more like a man. Exactly. So, you know, Oliver Berkman, who was a great column at The Guardian and is the author of many great books, was kind to endorse my first book on the subject, which is uh, a book on the downside of confidence. And he basically said, you know, the solution to a world run by overconfident fools is not to make the other half of the world overconfident too. And that's precisely the point. So, in fact, I do think that in 30 or 40 years' time, we will look back at some of the advice that is now seen as very kind and very pro-women and, you know, and very benevolent in a way. Things like lean in, be more confident, raise your hand in meetings, even if you have nothing to say, promote yourself or brand yourself. And we'll understand that it's all benevolent sexism because actually it's an attempt to fix women rather than the system that doesn't create the conditions for women to thrive. And it's an attempt to make women more like men. Where is the logic of encouraging women to do what men do, which is to apply for jobs even when they're not qualified? Surely it would be better to hire people when they're qualified. Where is the logic to teach women how to mansplain things at meetings? Surely we should tell people who are mansplaining, and they're usually men, not women, to just shut up. Okay, Dr. Tomas, I know that you come from Argentina, and I think this was part of the reason you became interested in researching confidence. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about your backstory? You know, it's interesting because as a scientist and an academic, you never really think about why you get interested in certain topics. I mean, there's a saying, which is research is me-search. So you always study, we say, <laughs> what you have a lot or what you lack completely. And this is famous, you know, in the, in the case of, for example, a lot of the researchers that ended up focusing on emotional intelligence either have a lot or have no social skills whatsoever. So they can become theoretical experts in an area without actually having any of it in a practical level. Mm. So it's only really after I started to reach to a wider audience that I began to ask myself, why am I interested in this? And how could my background have shaped my curiosity around this? And I think in this area, look, yeah, first of all, Argentina is a big country with immense natural resources that started in top position and almost didn't need to do much to be and remain the richest or one of the five richest countries on earth. This was, you know, around the late uh, 19th century and has extraordinarily managed to devolve and collapse slowly but steadily ever since. So we've been in decline for about 100, 120 years. And the reason is that actually we focus a lot more on style than substance. We've been electing or selecting politicians and leaders based on how good they thought they were or how good they seem rather than how good they are. And it's extraordinary that if you go to Argentina, especially Buenos Aires, and you meet people, their confidence, our confidence still remains intact completely uninfluenced and unaffected by our dismal level of performance. And so I think, you know, I've kind of grown up in this environment where everybody is a natural bullshitter, some more charismatic than others. And, you know, people are completely unaware of their limitations, which incidentally ends up being the evolutionary explanation for why overconfidence is so prevalent because 
If you can fool yourself, it's going to be easier to fool other people. If you believe that you're amazing, even if you're totally deluded, when you go to a job interview or you have a client presentation or you have a business meeting and people are not very good at assessing how good you actually are, they're going to say, wow, Pippa, wow, this, she must be quite good because she's so, you know, confident. And so that got me interested in confidence. And if you add that, that, you know, Argentina is still a sexist country, a chauvinistic country. And I was mostly really raised by women in my family. It's sort of like, you know, very interesting, very early on, I began to be very aware or very kind of uh, sensitive to this kind of distinctions between style and substance and males and females, and then confidence and competence. So, you know, it took about 20 years of research to look at the data to kind of back up my early theories, but that's where I am, right? I'm, I'm basically trying to persuade people that confidence is overrated, competence is underrated. And the difference between the leaders we have and the leaders we need is, by and large, a function of focusing more on style than substance and not being able to actually understand the difference between confidence and competence. So my own version of me search is self-doubt and limiting beliefs, because I realise I've got a lot of these and I've realised how much this has been an impact on my life. Can you share a little bit about your experience with self-doubt and limiting beliefs? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I love this topic because I think actually confidence can be a very self-limiting belief. Where I'm unusual is that I actually see the downside to confidence being clearer when it's high rather than low. And if you look at the self-help industry, blogs, articles, books, gurus, it almost seems that the implication, if you look at the, the vast literature on this and how much attention is devoted to underconfidence and self-doubt and, you know, the inhibiting, self-fulfilling effects of doubting yourself, you would easily conclude not just that women are pathologically insecure and paralyzed by fear and anxiety, but also that the world in general is pathologically insecure and paralyzed by fear and anxiety. And if you look at the literature, it's very, very clearly the opposite. We are more confident than we should be. We're too optimistic. I mean, optimism bias is the norm. We perpetually overestimate the potential likelihood of good events and underestimate the potential likelihood of bad events. Uh, we live in perpetual, you know, self-constructed hope, which actually, here's an example, like, and I think Peter Thiel, whom I'm not a fan of, said this, but he's correct here, that basically optimism and pessimism have the same effects. The pessimist obviously says, oh, well, what's the point of doing anything if it's going to be bad? But optimism is, well, I don't need to do anything because it's going to be good. Actually, what this behavioral science shows is that being in the middle and being moderately capable of both assertiveness and self-doubt is the best. And if you look at what people are in general, the fact that optimism bias is the norm, that we are overconfident. So Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for economics, but is a psychologist, and he invented this field of behavioral economics that highlighted how irrational people are, concluded that the number one bias in humans is overconfidence. And that leads us to interpret mistakes as other people's faults, successes as our own merit, and it makes us immune to negative feedback and criticisms. And, you know, it makes us perpetuate this identity that maybe our parents cultivated in us, that we feel that we're the smartest in class, the smartest person in the room, etc. So that's all very, very harmful. On the other hand, if you have people who even suffer from a healthy degree of imposter syndrome, and they question themselves, and that actually makes them learn more, study more, work harder to perform. This is a profile that is very common in extraordinary achievers. Why does Madonna keep sleeping in an oxygen chamber and, you know, keep performing and keep working hard to change her style? And why does Roger Federer suffer from a little bit of imposter syndrome in the critical match points of a game? Because these people are capable of the ruminations that actually make them in their mind not as good as they are in the mind of others. And that's how they achieve so many things. That's the gap that you want to create. So look, I think Voltaire said it best. 
I think it was in either Zadik or Kandit. Doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. And that's basically the way it is. Wow. So what I can't stop thinking about from what you just said is that imposter syndrome is good. Well, if we spend less time criticizing, ostracizing, or condemning imposter syndrome, we may end up with a world run by fewer actual imposters. Mm. Because the difference between an actual imposter and somebody with imposter syndrome is that somebody with imposter syndrome questions themselves, wants to improve, has some perfectionistic aspirations, and feels guilty or even ashamed when they're not performing well. Whereas an actual imposter is at best totally deluded and believes their own hype and is unaware of the limitations and unjustifiably pleased with themselves. The other case scenario is that they know they're a fraud, but they don't care. And they're just basically putting on a fraudulent persona and sustaining this because it gives them success. So again, look, logically, we wouldn't care so much about how people evaluate themselves would care about the consequences of these evaluations. And of course, there are people who are very anxious, who suffer from pathological, inhibiting self-worries and concerns and fears, but they're a tiny, tiny proportion of the world, you know, maybe 5%. And there are very good treatments for these problems. It's all in the mind of ideas. Cognitive therapy, psychotherapy works wonders there. We shouldn't assume that the majority of people in the world are paralyzed by fear because actually they're handicapped more by their high levels of confidence. And especially when you look at leaders, I argue that if you think about coaching and leadership development, it is mostly about lowering leaders' confidence, not elevating them. Because leaders already have a tendency to think they're better than they actually are. They surround themselves by people who suck up to them, which is how those people then get promoted. And it's very easy to end up in this sort of like Stalinesque or, you know, Hitleresque scenario where they just lose touch with reality and they believe their own sense of invisibility and their, the heroic picture that they have painted about themselves in their own imagination. Gosh. I can't tell you how thrilled I am that my imposter syndrome is useful in some way. There's so much, such a sort of narrative around it that you need to get over imposter syndrome, get over this. I find that really interesting. And just going back to something you said about the way that parents are with their children. So in our society, it's very normal to have this sort of, every child gets a medal, like, well done, honey, you're the best. Is that, is that actually the worst thing that sort of parents and teachers can be doing? Yeah. And so here, you know, it's very important to actually highlight some of the cultural differences, right? Because that might be very normal, let's say, in American society in the Western world, which of course does export its culture to everywhere, right? So even historically, I mean, it's like very blunt and inappropriate, exaggerated categorization. But if you look at the difference between the West and East, you had like in mostly in the West, individualistic, consumerist, uh, confidence-driven, self-belief societies. And in the East, you know, Confucianist, collectivistic, humble societies that worship self-knowledge and self-criticism rather than self-confidence. And, you know, as you live in Asia, you know that this isn't totally made up, right? That you can see that if you walk around Singapore, Seoul, or Tokyo, people carry themselves differently than they do in LA, Buenos Aires, or Sao Paulo, and New York. So the West makes the rest of the world more similar to itself. You know, Kim and Kanye are icons, cultural icons everywhere in the world, and they export narcissism. They don't export, you know, diligent self-knowledge and the quest to, you know, find self-awareness and illuminate yourself. Having said that, there are cultural differences clearly in parenting. I mean, you only need to compare the U.S. to France and educational system. I mean, in the U.S. is go girl, you're the best. Everyone has a medal. Everybody's, you know, and there are all these different ways of referring to people. Human resources in the U.S. refers to weaknesses and flaws as opportunities. That tells you something about, you know, the positive kind of uh, slate that they put on things. If you go to France and, you know, you scribble in the wrong part of your booklet, the teacher would hit you if she or he could, but it's illegal now, probably. But they're going to work very hard on 
making you realize that you're a total loser and you're a disaster and you're never going to amount to us. That's probably an exaggeration, right? I mean, <laughs> both extremes are bad. So what I'm saying is it would be nice to have both parenting and school or educational kind of systems that try to align people's self-belief and confidence with their actual abilities so they can monitor how good they are at something and so that they can get a realistic sense of their abilities and their limitations. And by the way, if you really want to play the violin, but your music teacher is telling you that you're not very good at it, that doesn't mean you can't do it. It means if you really want it, you know that you're going to work harder for it to achieve it. Whereas if you have no talent for playing the violin and your teacher tells you, oh, you're amazing, you're awesome, you know, I don't think that's very helpful. I mean, at some point you're going to play in front of an audience and they're going to say, oh my God, can I leave now? You know? So yeah, so I think I advocate against either extreme. But I think in general, we're gravitating too much towards the positive feedback, unrealistic praise extreme, which is why even in multinational corporations, which tend to be American in general, I mean, it's less and less as times go by, but it's still a mostly... You have culture, especially Silicon Valley and the West um, part of the US that want to eliminate negative feedback altogether. They want to coach everybody. They say everybody has potential and talent. Everybody is a leader. Everybody's great. I don't think that's helpful. That's unrealistic. You know, some people are better than others at different things. We should actually try to assign and distribute work and resources based on people's actual capabilities. And we should, we should help people become aware of their limitations so that they can improve their skills as needed. End of the story. All of that requires both positive and negative feedback. And same, of course, with our kids and our students in school and university. I'm reminded of, um, I don't know if you know Kim Scott and Radical Candor. Yes. Well, and so if you look at, for example, Ray Dalio's book and great talk on it and cultures like Bridgewater, to some degree, Amazon, the reason why they seem so much of an outlier, I mean, this idea that if you're rubbish, I'm going to tell you directly, is because society has gone in a different direction. I think it's, it's good that it has gone. It's for the good reasons that it has gone into a different direction because we want to construct civil and nice societies where we can tolerate and respect each other, even when we cannot empathize with others. But if we then go on to attacking, you know, microaggressions and fooling ourselves that we can actually create systems and societies where everybody loves everybody, even when they think differently and they look very differently and they come from different walks of life and they actually fundamentally have very different beliefs and values, then we're creating a cult. We're not creating a culture, you know? So if you look at examples where, for example, Apple and other tech companies have gone back on certain hires because employees wrote that they didn't want to have somebody working there who actually is too much of a Republican or too much of a Democrat or thinks that people shouldn't be vaccinated when they think they should, you know? I mean, imposing your beliefs on others is a natural consequence of assuming that, you know, there is a natural point of coexistence where we all love each other and we all think greatly of each other. And that's not true. You know, we need to go back to how the world has always been, which is you dislike your coworkers, you fake being nice to them, but then you bitch about them as soon as you get home. And that's the world, that's the way the world has always worked. And, you know, that's probably the best case scenario for human interactions. If you try to impose this idea that we all love each other and we have to embrace, you know, the difference and uniqueness, that's not going to work because fundamentally people are unique human beings and individual. And with that comes the ability to prefer some people to others. But you can still construct systems that preach and foment and, you know, harness civility, tolerance, let people have their own beliefs and hold them in public. This is why I'm also a big critic of authenticity or the authenticity cult. We're not paid for bringing our whole self to work. We're paid to display the most professional version of ourselves. We all inhabit multiple selves and that includes our dark side, which is not welcome in most professional environments. So, I mean, part of being professional is understanding or part of understanding the etiquette in a certain country, culture or system is understanding that we need to self-censor censor, and inhibit multiple parts of ourselves in different situations. I'm completely with you there on authenticity. It has to be one of my, my least favorite 
words after having heard it so many times over the last few years. Okay, as we've been talking a bit about gender, can I ask, as a man, how do you feel about your own experience with self-confidence as compared to women you grew up with or women you know well? Yeah. Look, so here I will just echo the sentiment, the, the kind of bitchy or snarky comments that, that I got immediately after publishing the book on why so many competent men become leaders and how to fix it. And the book doing so well. Same for the HBR article. A lot of my female colleagues, academics or not, or real world people who have been doing really good work on gender differences and who are really excellent and very smart feminists, they all looked at me and said, you realize they're only listening to you because you are an overconfident man. You know, touche, I think, fair point. <laughs> and so I think, you know, I'm fully aware that people might be listening because it's less likely to look at me and say, oh my God, another angry feminist when I am a man and I don't fit the traditional archetype or stereotype of angry feminists, let's say, for whom I have a lot of sympathy with, by the way. So I accept that, in which case my theory is probably correct, right? Because if they're listening for that reason, then, you know, it's, it's like, you know, they shouldn't because the theory is correct. But more importantly, I feel that if I have a platform because of who I am and certain characteristics that I have, and I also don't think I'm a traditional kind of in-group member or representative because I don't come from, you know, the English speaking world or from the US, the UK. I am, I'm an import there or mm. kind of I've been exported and imported there. But look, I fundamentally feel like if I have any advantages for who I am to put my message across, then I have to use it. You know, then I have to use that advantage. And if, if because of maybe my masculine confidence, although I'd like to think that my message is good because there is some substance and data, but if it is true that the message is effective or is absorbed because of who I am, I feel like I have a responsibility to then use whatever powers and influence that I have. And if that makes me kind of more combative, more aggressive, because there's also people that have said, okay, you know, you're right, but do we really need to throw more gasoline into the fire? Uh, can we stop, you know, with the gender wars, whatever? Here I am with Cindy Gallup. I, I don't think that being nice or kind has worked. So I think we need to fight. And with that comes, you know, you need to be combative and you need to be as aggressive as the other side, because if you feel that there is injustice and this helps get people's attention, then you have to use it, right? I think the polite, kind, apologetic way hasn't really quite worked. Now, I don't think that it's either my sub the substance or the style that actually makes the message effective. I think it's the times. I think the timing is now, you know, when I first wrote the article, Trump happened. When the book came out, Brexit happened. So all the time people see examples of the overconfident, narcissistic men being propelled to leadership roles. Then COVID happened, you know. So I think people are fed up. There is some progress in gender equality even in leadership, but it's so slow in our expectations, you know, we want more. So I think, you know, if this book had been written 30 or 40 years ago with the title, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? People would have said, is this science fiction? <laughs> but because it's published now, they're like, oh, well, they're saying, oh my God, how brave he asked that, he asked that question, which is worrying. It's the question that everybody's asking. But maybe people are still afraid to ask because they assume we should pay automatic respect to those who are in charge and that being a leader means being a good leader. And the evidence indicates the complete opposite. So long-winded answer, but it's a very good question. I feel actually very grateful for you for devoting so much time for this because I think you're right. If a, if a woman was saying this, no one would be paying any attention. And I think, you know, in that sense, I am an imposter because what I'm saying has been said before. Maybe how I say it and the arguments are slightly different. Again, I mostly refer to research done by other people, some of them women, some of them men. But yeah, I think, you know, again, if I can be useful in advancing the real world impact, that's really what I care about. I think we need to move from the philosophical or metaphysical stage to the action stage. And all I'm doing is providing some ammunition for people who want to be data-driven and who want to improve the world. So, you know, I once actually asked Cindy whether the conflict that we're seeing now and the pushback is because 
men are threatened by all this advancement, at least in the rhetoric on gender equality. And she rightly pointed out that absolutely not. Helping women is helping men too. Most of the men in this world are suffering from poor leadership and they would benefit if we had better leaders. And you only improve the quality of leaders if you have better people there. And if you actually focus on leadership potential or talent, you don't just improve the quality of leaders, you improve gender equality as well. I think that smart and rational men have nothing to fear about gender diversity or gender equality. On the contrary, they should be natural advocates, natural sponsors and champions. And when I see these studies and these data showing that when, you know, when male CEOs have daughters, there's actually less inequality in in gender, in wages, it just is so depressing, right? It's like Gianni Infantino, the president of FIFA, saying, I have three daughters at home, so I care about women and I support the soccer World Cup. It's, it's pathetic. You really need to go to that level of personal experience to value half of the people in the planet. It's horrific. So you mentioned earlier, you referenced the world of self-help. And I wanted to ask you about this because... I mean, it's, it's very seductive. The self-help world, there's a sort of narrative that if your mindset is in the right place and if you feel confident, all your dreams will come true. What are your thoughts on this? So it's a really good book. I think the guy is called David Salerno, but anyway, it's called Sham, S-H-A-M, and it's an expose of the self-help industry written maybe 10 years ago and actually has all the data on how self-help books increase anxiety, fear, you know, pathological levels of anything, either stay stable or increase in turn, and how it's fundamentally ineffective, right? So I would consider that some of the books that I've written, the one on confidence, is probably in, in that category, and at least I liked it. Some people like it, many dislike it. I think, you know, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is technically the first self-help book, unless you go back to, you know, the Stoics and ancient Greek or Roman times, is a great book and it's probably the best self-help book ever written and it probably can help people articulate their social skills, empathy, etc. So, look, I'm not against the industry. I am against charlatans who have no qualifications and who talk about stuff that isn't valid or that basically is in direct conflict and it's inconsistent with the evidence because I think there's a lot of useful evidence in psychology, psychotherapy, clinical psychology, behavioral sciences that we could actually leverage. And, and, you know, the overlap between facts and fiction is not what I'm after. But I think that in general, it's almost optimized or devoted to boosting self-belief and boosting confidence and boosting how people think about themselves. And I think it would be a lot more practical to help people boost their reputation or how they're seen by others. And that's a different route, you know. You improve in any area of life if you can develop the skills that make you a better person in the eyes of others. And it is a very bad and flawed shortcut to actually try to change how you see yourself if you don't change any of these things. And by the way, a lot of the people that think negatively and pessimistically and critically of themselves, they do so because of the personality. And we shouldn't, you know, I mean, it's like this almost like witch hunt that if you have any self-doubt or you question yourself, there's nothing wrong with you. And, you know, again, Being self-critical and doubting yourself can be a wonderful foundational element of your potential for being great in any area of life. Again, professional sports, athletes, artists, scientists, you know, I mean, they have this. So winning that battle against your ruminations, that battle is usually best won through improving your skills, achieving, developing, and, you know, pushing yourself, not through taking a pill that makes you happier. By the way, you know, there's a self-help industry and there's the pharma industry. And, you know, maybe I'm just influenced by this because I finished the book on the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and the OxyContin kind of massacre in the US. And you can totally see it, right? It starts with medicating for pain, but then it starts with medicating for people's inability to feel happy or, you know, euphoric all the time. 
And if you do that, you know, you can trick your brain very easily, but you become addicted to joy, pleasure, and fake kind of optimism and self-belief. And I think, unfortunately, the self-help industry is a little bit like, you know, the gasoline that you throw to the fire. So if people listening to this struggle with self-confidence, they feel a lot of self-doubt, they're aware they have all these limiting beliefs that they want to, to get past, your antidote is to focus on competence and accomplishments, and then confidence will, will follow. I would say my, my first kind of reaction to that is, you know, you're human. So humans have always been capable of fear, worry, concerns, anxiety, and all of that, you know. There's a lot of that that will be very helpful and that you should interpret as a signal that you're not happy with your level of skill, competence, reputation, etc. Building up on that, know that there's probably a lot you can do to improve or change those things. And then there's probably a fair amount of concerns, worry that are just you being too harsh on yourself, that you have to learn to ignore or silence, or at least lower the volume of that voice that, you know, tells you, oh my God, you're a fraud, you're a fraud, you're a fraud. Again, any big instance in life might benefit from your being harsher on yourself than others are. I think the, the optimal level of confidence is somewhat negative internal confidence so that you don't become complacent and you work harder than you even should to prepare for these big instances, coupled with somewhat high or positive external confidence when it gets to performing. And I think we see this in a lot of people, you know, like when you're performing, you have to get into the right mindset and you have to think, okay, I'm now selling and I have to try to hide my fears and, you know, believe in all the good things that I have. If you can't do that, then actually opening up and being vulnerable can be a great presentational strategy because people will sympathize and connect with you. They are humans as well. But all of the negativity, all of the pessimism, including imposter syndrome that precedes the instances of performance can help you excel in those moments. So, and remember that if the alternative is you think you're amazing, but you're not, you don't even prepare, you think everybody should like you, etc. I mean, that kind of makes you a narcissist. We have a lot of these people in charge. That doesn't mean they should be. So, I mean, I love this and it, it makes a lot of sense. One thing I do to slightly query, I'm thinking about myself here, is that I feel like I'm quite competent. And I think if I were to look from a few years ago, if I were to look at what I've achieved now, I think I would be very happy. But I think I move the goalposts for myself. So am I just slightly always going to be unsatisfied? And this is a beautiful capability, right? So I define ambition as the inability to be satisfied with your achievements. Again, ambition or drive is the inability to be satisfied with our achievements. I think Oscar Wilde said, there's only two ways of being unhappy. One, not getting what you want. The other one, getting it. This is the seed to progress. Civilization is the product of dissatisfied people. People who were unhappy with the status quo and unhappy with their own accomplishments. So if you think you have to achieve this and as soon as you get it, the happiness lasts for five seconds. And then you're thinking, oh my God, I should also do that. Or you compare yourself with others who are better. I know it's not a very pleasant, you know, sensation, but thanks to people like you and people who are capable of doing this, society keeps advancing and progress exists. If we all stop as soon as we achieve the first thing that was in our bucket list, that's good for Netflix, YouTube, and TikTok because we've spent even more time consuming, you know, videos and posting useless things than going down the YouTube or Instagram rabbit hole. But it's not very good for progress. So again, you know, if you think about what keeps extraordinary achievers still going, when we look at them and you're like, oh my God, surely they have enough money, accolades, status, etc. Why are they even working, right? But in each and one of us, there is a little bit of that. There is more drive than we need to be satisfied with our accomplishments. And there is this either inability to be happy with what we achieve or ability to remain dissatisfied. And again, it's not very pleasant, but that's how you become better. And maybe, you know, that's uh, something that has contributed to our cultural and even, you know, human evolution as a whole. 
because as soon as we do something or achieve something, we want more. And that means we have to change and we have to keep working and working and working. Okay. So what I'm taking away is I will always feel self-doubt, but maybe I shouldn't see that as a negative thing. I think that, you know, it's slightly unpleasant for you, but very helpful for everybody else. Right. <laughs> and I think the reverse scenario, which is that you're really pleased with yourself and all of your achievements, and then you either stop or you demand that others applaud and worship you all the time, might be quite pleasant for you, but really annoying for <laughs> others. Sounds lovely. Exactly. Not contribute to everything. So again, you know, you can only be you. So if there was a pill that you can take and it enables you to switch your personality and experience yourself and your accomplishment in a different way, maybe that's the only way to compare. I can only be me. But we can also draw lessons from the actual evidence and from data. And that's, and that's what it shows us, right? That actually, you know, there is this element of sacrificing your own feel-good state and your own mental or subjective well-being that actually leads to work and leads to accomplishments and benefits other people. Ultimately, you have to find that balance between objective accomplishments and being at peace with yourself and happy with yourself. But it's very easy to be way too happy with yourself compared to what you actually do for others. And that leads to a very selfish and self-centered society that, you know, isn't really that nice a place to live in. Okay. I think I really have to say thank you because you've really made me think about confidence and my experience with self-doubt, which I always thought was so negative in a totally different light. Thank you so much. So I have one final question for you. I'm asking everyone the same wrap-up question, and that is, can you suggest someone, nominate someone to come on this podcast, someone who you think has a really interesting perspective on, on the topic? So could either be someone who you think doesn't ever experience self-limiting beliefs or self-doubt, and we'll get in touch and find out if that's true, or someone who you think has a really interesting, unique perspective that might not be thought about, might not be so commonly known, or it could be someone completely aspirational. My absolute moonshot for this podcast is to try and speak to Oprah, who I think has overcome so much. A lot of people could come to mind, but the first person that comes to mind is someone who is an amazing scholar and professor in this field, as well as a great thought leader. And she's quite well known, but not as famous as she should be, given how good she is. So she's a professor at London Business School, and her name is Erminia Ibarra, originally Cuban-American, and one of the few, if not the only people, who was a professor at Harvard, INSEAD, and now London Business School. And she has done a lot of really good work on women and careers, which would touch on not just confidence, but also authenticity, self-presentation, self-branding. And she's very active both in academia and the real world. She sounds brilliant. I would love to speak to her. Yeah. And I'll be happy to introduce you as well. That would be brilliant. Okay, Thomas, thank you so much. It's really been such a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall.